Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Kenny Schachter is an artist, a teacher, and an author. I am very familiar with him from his opinion pieces at Artnet. I think he's a really fascinating guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. You can find Kenny at Kenny Schachter on Instagram. Kenny Schachter, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thank you very much. How are you, man? Everything is good. Can't complain. I could, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we can complain a little bit. I think a little bit of a complaint is good, but but I'm glad it's good. Okay. I had no idea that you grew up overweight. Yes. Some of my earliest memories are dealing with issues of being constantly put on diets from probably the age of five. And I have to say, like, once it becomes an issue, it often follows you for the rest of your life. And people would regularly assume that eating problems are more of a female-oriented problem, but I think it probably affects guys as much as women, to be honest, because it's something that I've had to deal with throughout my entire life and still do. Yeah, I wonder if it's just that there's, as far as like aesthetics go, that there's more, certainly more attention put on the aesthetics of the female figure in the world than there is of the male. And so if that just leaves us in a place of like, well, we should just shut up and not think about it. And whatever we're, whatever we are thinking about or dealing with or going through is kind of like, we need to just white knuckle our way through it and not complain. Yeah. But probably things like social media for kids growing up these days have put such an inordinate amount of pressure that probably never even existed. But I think like alcoholism or any other mental issue, I think that a lot of it is it's possibly genetic and inherited. My mother was constantly on yo-yo diets throughout her entire life and took diet pills. And uh, my sister had anorexia issues. So I just think that, I mean, in this day and age where uh, kids are exposed to such an accelerated rate of probably maturity and external outside pressures from their peers. I think that these things become more prominent than ever before, probably. I'm not sure of what the numbers are, but, you know, there are certainly more issues relating to mental illness and suicide in younger generation of people than ever before in history. And the rates are up like between the ages of 15 and 24, up like 50, 60% for suicide amongst kids. Oh, wow. I didn't know tragic that. and something that I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you were placed on a diet very early. <laughs> we really jumped into it head first. But we, we dove right into it. Like, like, we, <laughs> you know, we didn't even go out. I didn't get you a drink or anything. <laughs> like, I was, I had, I went to sleepaway camp for 10 years from the age of five, which was probably way too young for two months at a time. And when I go back and look at the yearly picture, the group photograph from every summer, it's like fat, fat, skinny, skinny, overweight, overweight. So it's just, like I said, I mean, even today I'm 58 years old and I just can't shake it. I mean, it's a way of dealing with work troubles and social, personal life issues. It's just kind of 
a way of dealing with existence in a sense. Were the sleepaway camps stressful? Was that a part of it at well, all? Well, I just think being, well, I mean, it probably came from before that in my family life and the relationship amongst my parents and the fact that my mother wrestled with these types of issues throughout her entire life. But like I said, like some of the earliest memories I have are hoarding food, hiding it in the bathroom and going to eat and putting candies under my, my sweaters and my shirts and my dresser and then eating them as if it was some kind of covert uh, behavior that wasn't permissible in my family to eat like that or to eat what you wanted when you wanted. Yeah, I remember, I remember feeling that um, whatever was served for a family dinner I had to eat very, very quickly or I wasn't going to get enough. And and there were always, there was always too much food. So I don't know where that compulsion came from, but I've thought about that a lot and I've, I've, I've seen it in other places, but it almost felt like, you know, the idea you get of inmates eating at prison, just get it down so you can be prepared if somebody's going to stab you or something. Right. <laughs> Lovely thought that right. it's funny because I was writing I was writing about uh, this lazy Susan device that they employ at Sotheby's during the course of an auction when they're selling paintings. They have two people showcasing the work of a painting on this kind of gigantic lazy Susan that rotates as each painting is sold. And then it turns out that Thomas Jefferson invented the device. And for his daughter, who was always the last one to get served food, and that was a way to hurry up and create an opportunity for her to get some food before it was all eaten, before she had a chance to delve in. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember my first experience with one of those was at a, a Chinese restaurant, and it was just wild that you could just spin this thing and you didn't have to ask the mortifying question of, please pass me something. Some more, really. Yeah, because please pass me something always came with at least the uh, imagined gaze of of disappointment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the issue is, like, I had a very, I mean, being overweight and I stuttered, I mean, now I never shut up whenever I get the chance to speak publicly or to teach a class or to write, but I had, I was very alienated. I lost my mother from a very young age, and my dad was not terribly affirming or encouraging in my life. And in a sense, I lived a very kind of alienated life and food was just something that never disappoints and was quite a pleasurable experience. I mean, it goes back to Sigmund Freud and various psychological studies that, you know, that's one of the first areas of gratification and satisfaction is by feeding yourself. So, I mean, I think that works You could, in a healthy way. There's a lot of great, I mean, I've learned over the course of the last 30 years, I've been a pescatarian and there's nothing that I eat that goes into my mouth or on my body that I don't check the ingredients on. So I eat very healthily, but you could still satisfy those urges that are very primal, which whether you're happy or sad, if you have that desire to eat maybe a little bit more than you should, if you're very conscious about the quality and the, the ingredients of what it is that you're eating, there's ways that with exercise and I see like you're in the most incredible shape and I've seen that you've lost like 200 pounds, which is mind boggling. But when you mat, there's a way to manage these issues and these compulsions and impulses and to do it in a healthy fashion where you could 
turn your life around in a sense and still not feel like you're always starving, which is a very unpleasant feeling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The the and I've done I have done a lot of the diets where you are in effect starving and just like a really extreme caloric deficit and then it comes with like being cold all the time and many times there will be like stretches of weeks where every time you stand up you're lightheaded and blacking out and your vision goes away and and all of this is just rationalized yeah. away at like the idea like, well, I'm losing weight, so this is a side effect of that. But it is it isn't something you can do forever because the the, the no. end result is death if you do that forever, you know? Yeah. Well I mean that kind of deprivation I think is wildly unhealthy. And I think like the dieting industry where people prey on these kinds of insecurities of people I mean, I just think it's one of the most exploitative areas in our society today. It's a billion-dollar business, a multi-billion-dollar business, and I could write a diet book on the back of a business card which says, eat less and exercise. It's just as simple as that. And, I mean, you hear so often it's such a fad or a fashion for people to go to spas. I mean, it's a first-world problem where people pay $1,000 a week and eat hot water 24 hours a day. And I say eat because that's basically all they get served. And then as soon as you're let out, you'll gain back three times the weight in five seconds when you have a, a pantry full of nashing food. Right. So I just think you really have to develop a mental balance. And like I said, like I just think if you're very conscious about the ingredients, stay away from you know, various obviously unhealthy foods, then there's a way to negotiate these issues and to get through it in a healthier way without relying on these like starvation diets for 16 hours. And it's, I find them just terribly uh, unhealthy and stupid and the way really exploitative the frailties that we're facing. I totally agree. I, I think at any time that something is being like mass marketed to people as, you know, the way to do something, it becomes, well, I mean, there's a couple things you talked about first world problems. And I think that it is largely or entirely a first world problem. But but then there's the, the other aspect too, which when you talk about how you eat healthy, the 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 people, honestly, the, the areas that are being most disproportionately affected by obesity are impoverished areas within the first world. And so right. then I worry about the access to, you know, I don't know that a guy in you know, I'm trying to think of the most middle of America, like maybe St. Louis has a huge amount of access to seafood. I, I mean, I'm saying that and I, I, I bet they probably do. Yeah. Um, the infrastructure for yeah. moving food around America is pretty, pretty darn good. But, but when you, yeah. when you don't have a lot of money, your, your access to healthy food diminishes quite radically. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Yeah, I mean, it's also a very cynical thing that a lot of this, the most disgusting high sugar content food and the highest alcohol content liquor and beer and stuff is marketed to lower income areas, which is just the kind of heinous way that some of the commercial economic system that we live in functions to take advantage of people. And that's why you see COVID rates higher in minority areas. And there's a lot of serious problems in that regard. 
But again, like I just think that, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should go to Whole Foods and buy stupidly expensive, you know, food, but just fruit and vegetables and salads. And there are things that are readily available and expensively. They don't have to be fancy ass, like natural ingredients, stupid food. But you can, again, it's, it's, a, it's an education process and there needs to be the desire to, to pursue these healthier ways of living and negotiating these pressures that we all face psychologically and economically. But I guess it's a matter of education, desire, and just kind of understanding that it is accessible, but you really, you know, you, there's such an effort to, to market unhealthy things that are, you know, that are just dangerous to people. Yeah. It's, because it's, there's more money involved. Yeah, it, it is so tricky too because once you have the education, there's still those those whatever. And I'm glad we're talking about this because I think a lot of my issues certainly developed were developed in my childhood. But like, I know that you know Domino's pizza is a really unhealthy food. It's it's it maxes out fat and carbohydrates for what a meal should be. Very little protein almost no fiber like and the fact that it's so dense with calories like a meal should be a slice or two of something like that and i could very easily eat the whole pizza and i know I all that ate, i ate a whole pizza too. <laughs> i think yesterday yeah it's not it's really not hard to put away you know as an adult to put away a whole pizza so analytically knowing you could buy whole wheat whole wheat flour and healthier you know, and reduce the amount of cheese and not use oil. There are ways to, I mean, if I was on death row and choosing my last supper, I think it would be pizza and pasta and certainly not caviar or any expensive bourgeois last course. Right. So, I mean, pizza is one of life's great pleasures, I have to admit. But then again, like we're saying, maybe Domino's or these commercial branded pizzas that don't use the greatest ingredients. And again, like you could probably make a healthy pizza for the same cost with less calories uh, than you can as a Domino's pizza. Right. If you take the effort and take the time. But again, like everyone, time is of essence to so many people. And, you know, people just want the immediate gratification of getting the quickest way to fill your stomach up with the least amount of effort. So I understand, again, the difficulty. It's easier said than done. Yeah. How did you start moving over from, like, extreme dieting, fad dieting disorders to to this more kind of moderate approach to eating? Well, like I said, like, my mother would put me on these crazy diets. There was Weight Watchers, and then there was enough. There were all of these kind of institutionalized eating programs that I was on. I can't – I blocked out the name of some of them, but – it just went on and on. And then I guess at a certain point, I wanted to get invited to a Sweet 16 party when I was, I would literally run home from um, high school and eat as many French bread, Stouffer's frozen French bread pizzas as I could shove down my throat during the course of the allotted time to lunch. And then at a certain time, like a maturing child, I wanted to develop a social life and get invited to this party. And then I guess, like, again, like, I mean, I think obsessive compulsive disorder or I think that a lot of it has to do with mental issues and how hard it is to have a balanced life and, you know, to get around some some issues of how you're reared as a child and your relationship to your parents 
and these issues, like he said, as a child, I don't know how many brothers and sisters you had and what your relationship to your parents were, but I think a lot of these things are steeped in our consciousness at a very early age, and once they're ingrained, I find them almost impossible to shake. So I guess like in high school, the way that I lost weight was probably a wildly unhealthy way that I did it, which was just to radically reduce the caloric intake bordering probably on some form of anorexia where I eat like a, a can of tuna and a half a cantaloupe every day for a month or two. And that radically reduced my weight. And so I think that I, like I said, I mean, all of these decades later, if I ever get down, I don't, I, I don't drink and I don't do drugs, although I certainly have in my time, but eating is really still this way. I mean, I call it like cereal eating, not cereal, but this kind of repetitive movement of putting things into your mouth where you barely even chew it or even notice what it is that you're eating. So you really have to slow down right. and be aware of what you're eating and chewing it enough. And I mean, they're simple things, but it's much easier said than done. And to this day, I just, I, I'll never be able to beat it in all probability. I mean, I think I would have an easier time as a, if I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, that would be easier to stop than this kind of obsessive compulsive relationship to food. It's there everywhere. It's there plentifully. It's not expensive. It's not so, you know, it's socially accepted in the general sense, but there's a lot of discrimination uh, to people that have weight issues sadly in the society. Yeah, I, I, but can, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's, not, it's something I'll probably deal with for the rest of my life. I don't want to diminish the the uh, the difficulty in quitting drugs and alcohol because I do I, I I've I've also done that and and it is incredibly difficult but I th there's a real point to what you're saying because the solution for becoming sober if if you're troubled by drugs and alcohol if they if they're having a negative impact on your life the solution is you stop doing those things and then you you work on yourself and and figure out why you were doing that etc. But you cannot do that with food, no matter what. Even if you're going to go on some kind yeah, of like a, a protein IV, that's you still point. need to have food. So you're <laughs> constantly coming in contact yeah. with it. It would be like if like Charles Bukowski one day decided he was just going to, you know, I don't know, drink beer instead of rock gut liquor or something. He's, you know, he he's not going to be a sober person. No, but people don't understand, like, I remember my dad saying that he quit vodka and he was just drinking wine. But if you drink institutional amounts of wine, you may as well just inject it in and as well because it's the same difference. But that's a great point because, you know, like you said, you have to eat. And I also am adamantly against people that say, like, I never eat carbohydrates or I'll never eat pasta and I'll never eat sweets. I mean, that's just not the way to live either. And I think that with food, like you say, it's much harder because – it's in front of you and it's really something that is very life affirming when done. But again, like the way you exercise and your physique is pretty astonishing. It's so sculptural coming from an art background. But like I just got out of, I just had some, you know, I was hungry and I didn't, I ate a bunch of peanut butter and crackers or, and then I just, I went swimming. And for me, like the most beautiful way of exercising, which is not a grueling, unpleasant, like you obviously love working out and I love to walk briskly and I love to swim when I have access to a swimming pool. And for me, it's almost like going back to the womb and I swim almost like a turtle, but it's so cathartic and it's, it's such great 
non-stressful exercise on your joints as opposed to running. And it's a great way to stay fit and to be relaxed and to be thoughtful and mindful. And I think when it comes to drugs and drinking as well, like the way you get over these things is just to like step back and see, feel your own feelings, which sounds so simple, but is amongst one of life's greatest obstacles, which is just to take the time to breathe and to, to feel pain and to feel good feelings and bad feelings. You're not always going to be happy. Things aren't always going to go your way. And you face a lot of pain and frustration throughout the course of a life. And the hardest thing is to just, just stomach it and, and not to make a comment about stomachs, but just to really, you know, I've had, I've had some tragedies, some terrible situations only recently. And I'm so grateful that I was able to face them and still am facing them as a sober person who's trying to learn how to feel some of the most hideous things that a person can face up against. Yeah. There, there is something, there is something to, there is certainly a difference between doing something um, because you believe it's the right thing to do versus actually having some kind of a, of a pleasure just for the act of doing it. And I think you found swimming and walking and I, I certainly am really enjoying lifting weights right now. I don't know that I'll enjoy it forever and hopefully I'll find something else active to do if I ever stop enjoying it. But there is something really vitally important about that because if you, if you know, I think the, the biggest point is that we just won't, we won't continue to do something if we don't enjoy it. And if no. we take a day off, it will be that no. much harder to restart. Yeah, but I think that's really one of the most important notions. That, I mean, as far as life, in the most basic fundamental sense, I think with anything, the most important thing, if it's possible, because economic necessity precludes it for a lot of people, unfortunately, but when it comes to exercise or even like my, I've spent my life devising a platform to work where it brings me such joy and solace and satisfaction that for me, the worst day of the week is a Sunday when everything slows down and goes quiet. Because I mean, I think with exercise, with eating and with anything that you live through in your life, it has to be on a basic level, something you derive some form of basic pleasure and, and satisfaction. So if you like to binge or eat a lot of food, like I do, being a kind of all or nothing person, then I, I make a compromise and I find food that's healthier. So if I do go through a phase where I overeat, I, I do it in a way that's not so bad for my health. And when it comes to my work, I've taken, it's taken me a lot longer to find a way to make a living, but I decided early on that I wouldn't capitulate and I, I would just strive to find something that you spend so much of your time working. And if it's possible, it's not possible, obviously, for everyone, but to find something that you love to do, which you obviously have done. And um, it just it makes it gives you such a satisfaction that for me, work is a day of vacation for me would be more work than work. Right. Yeah, me too. I I. I really enjoy some time off with my family, but that time is so much more precious after a long stint of work or a lot of effort towards work because I like my work and it makes it uh, that much more worthwhile. This, this, this quarantine 
has been brutal because if I prior to the quarantine, I would have said, you know, my ideal it would just be spending time with my family. And I still think that's true to some degree. But then when you're spending endless time in a non-productive state, it becomes like, I got to do something. Like, I just need to go do something. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's something really magical I find about your writing, which, you know, I always think about the art world as a lot of pageantry and it's, it's very almost performative. And then I can read something by you and you humanize everyone and you show a a perspective of what's going on that makes me understand it on a deeper level, which I really, really appreciate And I just would love to hear what your process is there. Well, that's so kind of you. (laughs) I just want to put that on rewind and listen to it again. Thank you very much. But I mean, again, it all relates back to everything we're saying. I mean, I've had a difficult life in certain respects. And the writing that I do, in a way, is to try to make things understandable. And I'm deprecating. I don't take myself seriously. And I know I'm not a doctor and I'm not curing diseases although there have been clinical studies by a local hospital I live next to in London where they are accredited as a museum and they've done studies that say proactively commissioning art for all of the rooms and public spaces in the hospital has resulted in shorter hospital stays requiring less medications. So for me, I'm almost messianic about art because, I mean, I never set out to be this writer that pulls back the curtains and divulges stuff in a world which shrouds itself very purposefully in fake news and embraces lies and 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 being almost opaque about the whole process and machinations of the art world. And over the course of simply doing it and just explaining my life in the arts, I mean, it, it's had such an impact on people and through my teaching, where I teach now at the School of Visual Arts in New York and the University of Zurich. And I just think like you spend your whole life gaining this experience and garnering this kind of acuity and knowledge And then to share it and to give it away is probably the most satisfying professional experience. My wife would prefer if I focus more on buying and selling art or making my own art and selling it. But I derive such a satisfaction through my writing and explaining things and doing it in a human, funny way that draws people in, but also revealing some of the most insidious and darker sides of it. And again, like, yeah, I just think that the feedback that I get from people eggs me on so much and it gives me such kind of strength to do it better and to do it more in a way that it's just a very interesting and beneficial cycle where the feedback, although monetarily it's not too good in the writing world, but I get more satisfaction from publishing an article than selling a Van Gogh painting, for instance. I just love, like you said, like I just, in a world that shrouds itself in like Omerta, like in the mafia, this kind of law of unwritten laws of secrecy, the art world thrives on holding back information like state secrets. And I just derive a great pleasure from exposing after 30 years in the art world, I've had access to so much information and experiences that I feel compelled to share it because, you know, when I can inspire one person, it's really something that brings me a great amount of joy. Yeah. I have a daughter in Cooper Union. I don't know if I'm even supposed to say that if she would want that said. But um, I am 
I think like you and, and Brad Trammell, I go like everything's going to be okay because there's these guys doing their thing, which is like almost a counterweight, you know? Right. I mean, I think like the art world could be a very dark place and a very foreboding place where it's so like, you know, this kind of exclusivity and hierarchical behavior is stifling. And the fact that there's people like me and other people, for me, like Instagram, for instance, which is how we kind of forged our relationship, it's the most like revolutionary force of nature that goes to democratize the accessibility of information about the art world. And I mean, when I started, you used to have to send photographic slides to convey an image from one person to another through regular mail. And now you could be in any corner of the globe and in the healthiest sense of uh, globalization, you could be practicing art in any continent from Africa to Asia to South America. And you can just with the press of a button, share your information with such a fabulous, deep, thoughtful audience of people. And I've seen so many instances of people gaining great exposure, both personally and professionally, through the more kind of democratic sharing platforms such as Instagram and Facebook to really expose what it is you're doing to a wider audience. And that to me has been extremely gratifying. Yeah, I I think of it – I think there are – like in the same way – there's the the diet industry plays all the same games and the food industry plays all the same games and and when we're thinking about something like art art is like i think of art as the thing that uplifts us like of course it makes sense to me that a hospital filled with beautiful artwork would reduce stays people aren't wanting to stay sick and stare at the art longer it's actually going to uplift them and and make them better to some degree in the same way that we've become so wealthy that one of our biggest problems is that we have such an abundance of food that you would think that the diet industry would be this thing that's going to come in and go like, hey, there's a bunch of other things you could do. There's ways to use this food that that maybe you haven't thought of and there's ways to use your body that maybe you haven't thought of that can actually use the surplus of food for a positive result versus a negative result. And instead, it becomes kind of like a dark place where people are guarding their fortunes. Right. Well, I mean, again, even like I said, like I have these earliest memories as a child and there was, it, nothing has changed. There's been these crazy fad diets that are just like new ways of marketing. And it's a terrible thing to prey on these insecurities of people instead of just saying, I mean, I think there should just be one diet to the world not to be stupidly generalizing, but it's just not eating too much and eating better, healthier food is all that it takes instead of these super processed food. I mean, no one should ever have a Coca-Cola for the rest of their life or um, some of this crap fast food. It's saturated in poison. And one, I mean, I've seen articles where one soda causes detrimental effects to your kidneys. And I mean, also you read that only good art is expensive and art is only affordable by the few and you have to always buy the newest and the trendiest. And it's the same kind of uh, mentality, which is that art is cheap. You could buy prints, you could buy drawings, you could buy art from students, you could buy art on the internet for $100 or $200, which is fantastic art that could potentially even increase in value and be happier by just 
you know, it's like having a dog living with an art, living with art. And during this, during the COVID crisis, I was in New York for three months and really like my whole life been at the airport every two weeks for the last 30 years. You're always late, but you don't even know what you're late for after a while, going to see another art fair, going to see another show, running, 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 running. And during the, during the three months that I was locked down in New York City, which was not nearly as bad as the horrible media had portrayed, you would think people were keeling over in the street, and that certainly wasn't the case. Although there was a hospital in Central Park, but in the end it was a disused hospital. But I was able to like rub my nose every single day. I woke up and rubbed my nose against a drawing or a painting, none of which were terribly expensive. And it was just, it was a period to take stock. And again, like I lost one of my children over the, a year and a half ago and having this time just to feel my feelings. And I was teaching a class over Zoom for the School of Visual Arts, a six hour lecture every Tuesday. And it gave me this kind of guidepost to focus on, to study for, to interact with my students. And the only reason I teach is really to, to learn myself. And the students enlighten you and teach you in so many different ways that it was, it was almost like constant therapy just through looking and listening, which I think is such a rare quality in society today, which is, I mean, most people in the art world, they're just buying with their ears or listening to what their friends are doing instead of just having the pure confidence to trust their intuitive, instinctual response to looking at something and to taking the time just to like stand in front of something and not be hurried and think and feel. And I think that's just so important in every part of our life, including eating. Like I get caught myself from tension and stress. And like I said before, like I could sit there and eat a box of regular cereal or a box of this and a whole wedge of cheese. And I couldn't even tell you what it tastes like because I'm not even focusing on what it is I'm doing. It's just going through the motions to fill a hole. And that's just is really the problem that underlies, I think, a lot of the issues that we're talking about in relationship to unhealthy eating. Yeah, I, th- I think you're totally right. I think that the I think that ultimately all diets do work on that principle, eat less, move more, exercise more, whatever version of that it, that it is that you want to choose. And then there's just the different it's, – it's how do we arrive at that? Well, everybody should be eating 600 calories a day. No. It, it, that's the worst. That's the worst. I've done that so many times throughout my life. That I totally know, you know, what the first week is going to be like and then what it's going to f- be followed with and how long I can hold out. And, and when I think about that now, you know, it's just, it's just swapping one bad arbitrary habit for another, I think, at that point. Plus, it just keys you up to, to fail. Yeah. I mean, whenever you have to sort of drastically limit the intake of anything, going to a spa, one of these stupid things, or going on a fad diet and you're fasting for 16, 18 hours, eventually it's setting yourself up to fall because you're going to be, you're going to have this inordinate desire to have something that you're being deprived of. And if once in a while you eat some ice cream and some whipped cream and some dominoes, it's not going to kill you as long as you don't just get stuck into a lifestyle of, repeating these problems and again like i just think like the whole diet industry is so corrupt and inherently it's so it's in you know failure is ingrained and there's just it's it's ridiculous because it's just a very simple lifestyle choice of just trying to contain it your appetite and then just 
like you said, eating less and moving. And if you're moving more, you eat more. It's as simple as that. And you don't have to do radical exercise where you're killing yourself. And I also think like being in tune with your body and just sort of your body, if it needs, if it's a shortage of a certain vitamin, you'll end up craving like a banana or an avocado or, you know, and like eating a banana or eating fruit or freezing some grapes or there's just creative ways to take fruit and turn it into something else. But all of the great tastes that are known to people come from naturally derived things. And and if you're like in a bad mood and feel that desire, then you just focus on just overeating something like a salad or something with good dressing. I mean, it sounds simple, but it is simple. And I just hate all of those things. Like you said, I just think it preys on these kinds of um, fears. Yeah, I think the the biggest key for that decision, because it really is just like a decision, here's what I'm going to do, is planning. Because, you know, if you don't plan and you start or you haven't planned ahead and you run out, like if, if frozen grapes are the thing that's going to save you from eating Snickers bars or whatever <laughs> your thing is, because mm. clearly frozen grapes are, you know, unless you're eating... 12 bushels of frozen grapes in a sitting that's gonna be healthier (laughs) right than a a bowl of snickers bars the day you run out of frozen grapes and you get that urge for something sweet and there's a gas station on the corner that sells snickers bars or your grocery store is two miles away you you might your, your plan might go out the window and then it might be harder to get back onto yeah. the frozen grape train. But I think you're totally correct. I think there are a lot of hacks. <laughs> there's also like fro- there's frozen yogurt, frozen yogurt, which right. is a great substitute for ice cream, or sorbet, which is also very satisfying and tasteful. It's funny because I always think, like with willpower, there's a hair that separates a decision to make, whether it's drinking, not drinking, drugs, not drugs, eat, overeating or not. It's like a thin line. Whether which side of the line you opt to be on is one of life's hardest decisions. But I find like once you cross the line when it comes to willpower and you make up, like you said, planning, like if you make up your mind and you just like when you slip, you can't, you can't uh, crucify yourself and you can't be too hard on yourself because we're all human and we all fail. It's human nature and you can never succeed without failing so you can never really be too harsh on yourself or judge too much but really that's just about life and you have to try to do your best and understand what's good eating and what's bad eating and why you're doing it yeah so you never shut the fuck up now were you were you introverted (laughs) as a kid (laughs) part of the reason i quote unquote never shut the fuck up I literally was catatonic until I was like 14 years old. Like I said before, I stuttered. My dad was terribly disencouraging, if that's a word. And my mom passed away when I was 13 years old. But I had very few, if any, friends. And I would just stay in my room. And I had a, a, a wall that was made of cork. And I would just simply cut and collage magazine images. And I lived my whole life through this process of... Um, of really cropping images and cutting them out of various magazines and putting them on my wall. But not only did I not have friends to talk to, but when I did talk, I couldn't speak because I had a speech impediment. And I'm a very late-blooming, self-actualized person. And I guess the reason I never shut up is because I feel that I have something to say that nobody else is saying. But for such a, a large chunk of my life, 
I had nobody to talk to. I had no family support. I had no, no, I had no hobbies. I didn't even step into an art gallery until I was 27 because I, I didn't know they existed. I thought that art went from an artist to a museum because nobody ever took me to a museum or a gallery in my entire life. And I literally had no passion. I had no interest. And I went to law school to sort of hide from the marketplace because I studied philosophy and I had no idea what I wanted to do commercially. I defined my whole kind of professional existence in this negative sense. I knew I didn't want to take a job in advertising, which was pretty much the only job you can get with a philosophy and political science degree. I knew I didn't want a desk job and I knew I didn't want a regimen that was largely repeated every day for the rest of my life. And I just sort of waited and did part-time jobs until I could find something that really got me excited. So the talking and all of that comes from a very late blooming sense of self-confidence and self-esteem that I really only kind of felt comfortable in my own skin over the past like five years or seven years. It's been a very hard thought process to really find out who I am and what I have to offer. When did you start showing your own art? I started like 25 years ago and I would curate exhibitions of emerging artists and I showed people that are now quite well known within the contemporary art realm like Cecily Brown whose paintings have sold for five, six million dollars and Wade Guyton, the same thing, and various artists. So I would just sort of ingratiate myself amongst, go to different art schools, travel to Germany and to various places on my own and teaching. I'm completely self-taught when it comes to art. I've never taken an art class other than one I started teaching at the new school in 1992. And I would just sort of, I mean, half the group shows that I curated with all of these artists that some of them are now quite very well known was really a kind of subtext to um, situate my own work in the context of, of my peers who had all been to graduate school, art school, and gone through the professional normal ranks of how to progress in the art world. So really it's been just sheer determination. And I think when it comes to eating, when it comes to my family, when it comes to life, we're always learning and making mistakes, but kind of diligence and perseverance and the ethic of just applying yourself and never taking no for an answer and, and just not stopping and not is, I mean, I had a writing teacher in college who told me that I shouldn't be a writer, a writer, that my writing was so bad. And I was in, I was literally in tears. I mean, it was one of the worst existential experiences I've ever had. And since then I've written a book, I've contributed to a book published by MIT. I've won writer of the year in the art world for three various times. And I think that's a great lesson in life and through all of these things. I was made fun of. I was ostracized. I was bullied and picked on. And instead of just folding it all in, I just it just hardened me to the point of trying that much harder to just – I proved myself not to my parents. Not I mean, I never even told my dad what I did when I was on the cover of the New York Times magazine section. I was proving it to myself and to like-minded people that appreciated the work and the effort of what I lived through and accomplished. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. That I mean, that is one of the things that I want to be able to do more than anything is use negativity and turn it into a positive. I think that's one of the, that's a real, real gift that people can have. I don't think I have it at all. Like negativity hits me and, and knocks me on my ass. But 
when I hear about people like yeah, you, but you've done some you've done some extraordinary things. So I don't believe you in that case. Well, I mean, and you lost such a gigantuan amount of weight. Anyone else would have just thrown in the towel. I How throw, did you do that? I, I have thrown in the towel. I have thrown in the towel multiple times. I I think. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess maybe you're right. Maybe there is some portion of me that that does that, but I don't know that I can do it with thought. Does does that make sense? Like, I can't take. Maybe I can. Who knows? I, I just I admire that in in you that that that's how that's how you did that. I I I don't think I ever once took some uh, negative look or or upsetting comment and then went and did something positive because of it, maybe in spite of it. Right. No, I think I was in spite of it. I mean, it didn't, I didn't set out to be a writer because she told me I couldn't. My dad even tried to dissuade me from continuing a career at the fine arts because I wasn't financially successful after the first couple of years. And it emboldened me on a certain level, not because I set out to prove something, I mean, the most important thing is to find peace within and to find some degree of um, satisfaction with yourself and the limits and the goals that you set for yourself, not to prove anything or not to, you know, show you can do something to somebody else, but because you want to. And, you know, yeah, I just think that you it has to come any kind of peace and any kind of satisfaction whether it's in your body or in your soul and in your, you know, profession, it has to be through passion. And really, if you could boil it down to one thing in life, I mean, it's got to be just to, to find the passion, no matter what it is, and then just doggedly pursue it in the best way that you're capable of doing with what you have at your disposal. Yeah, I couldn't, and not I couldn't agree more. And not give in. And really, that's all. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most creative. But I just, I care. I care about what I, and like another thing, like I was going to say, like to your daughter, like when I've lectured to kids 15 years old to like graduate students and I do it all the time and I always finish my lecture, no matter who I'm speaking to. If you want to get in touch with me, send me a DM off of Instagram. I return instantly every single email and DM I get from anyone and I try to help to the best of my ability because again, like I just feel like, you know, you didn't have to have me here speaking to you. And you just, it's, I mean, I just think it's a great kind of thing to give back. And it's not like I'm the most charitable person either, but I just feel like if anybody, the reason I don't shut the fuck up is if anybody wants to hear what I have to say, I'm going to tell them. And if I can help anybody, I mean, whether you're a student and you have nothing and you just want to get a foothold into a system that's very unforgiving and very unwelcome to people that want to break in, I just think if you find one person that won't say no and close down the doors, it could change people's lives. And if I could do that in the most minuscule, teeny, tiny sense, then it's a life worth living. And it gives me such happiness, really. And, yeah, I mean, I remember just a friend who was, became successful and then married a super wealthy person. And his assistant calls me up and say he would like to meet with you and catch up. And I just find that behavior to be so disturbing. I don't care if you're God or whatever. I mean, you speak to people. People are people, no matter from what walk of life they derive from. And there's no reason to treat people in any way other than the way you would treat your children. You know, and I, and that's the way I approach my career, my career, my profession, is that if I can help or talk or through my experiences, give someone hope or give someone inspiration and encouragement, 
then that's a damn great thing that I've accomplished better than selling things expensively or anything else. I completely agree with you. The the way we treat people is 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 pretty important. I I'm so fascinated by you and I just think it's wonderful that you've that you have doggedly and with determination gone through the change you've gone through and and you are I think such a boon to your industry. And I had no idea that that you grew up with with eating disorders and stuff like that. Like it doesn't it doesn't present in you the way I feel like I can spot it in people or the way I am I have my own introversions about it, if that makes sense. Although, I, you know, it's a little different, I guess, but to each his own and all that. I mean, I mean like I said, if you have it, I think early on in your life, you, you can't shake it. It's a lifelong condition that you learn to live with, like other conditions. I mean, I'm so self-conscious to this day about taking my shirt off or the way I look. It's just a kind of body dysmorphia, but I just think that people shouldn't be flippant about it because it's a very, I mean, it really affects people in their lives in such a profound way that you can't dismiss it or just say they're being shallow or, or no, it's a deep seated condition that affects every grain of your body. And I think like once you, maybe I mask it or people would never know because I know how to treat fabric over my body. But right. I just think it's something that, that follows you for your, it's something that I'll take with me to the rest of my life. I mean, literally every day, more or less, because like you say, I mean, if you drink, you don't go to breakfast and there's like a gigantic vat of brain alcohol. No, but there could be a basket of croissants. And then you have to think like it's this all or nothing mentality. Like if I have one bite or a half of one, what's going to stop me from eating the whole basket? And I think contending with that kind of it's like an alluring thing that seduces you and draws you in and you have to, it's the self-control sounds. And also like the way society relates to people that have, whether it's a thyroid condition or whatever reason, the way people are so judgmental about the appearances of other people in this day and age, I just think it contributes to so much bad feeling amongst people and prejudice because of these issues that could be health related, psychologically related, it's just people are so have no empathy for other people and less and less it feels. And sadly in this crisis of politics and um, that we're facing today in the world, it's so disheartening to think that on a lot of levels, we're going backwards in society with a president like we have. Don't you think it becomes this with everything though, that there's always, it, I feel like every thing I venture into there there are opposing camps and and I don't find myself within any of the camps. I really want people to just be figuring stuff out and happy with their decision and 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 with their their solutions to whatever problems they seem to be having without insisting that their solution is right for everyone like but but like you said, like well, if that if that was the case, we'd live in a beautiful world. Yeah, but we don't. And right. in a way, it just—I mean, everything always seems like oh, it's never been like this before. Things are getting deteriorating and spiraling out of control. And of course, it's not like that. We've had pandemics before. We've had racism throughout history. But sometimes it feels like the way technology is accelerating. I again back to the pressures that kids face. I just don't think that they've been as acute as they are now 
in relationship to these things that literally change in a physiological sense the way children mature and go through puberty and how their minds change and through these being exposed to these technologies that they've never we've never faced before. And yeah, I don't know. I just think that times change, and there are. Pro- it's a shame that people can't be more, you know, empathetic towards each other and be more humanistic on such. And that's why, in the art world, and from my writing, in a very tiny little grassroots way, it's very important to me to be a voice that's accessible to people and that isn't judgmental and that gives everybody the equal chance to to participate, which I think is just so important. And I get into a lot of trouble through my writing and sometimes I get threats and people try to beat me up or worse. Uh, and it's worth the risk because I care so much. Yeah. No, I can tell that. I, I love your writing because I can tell that you care and, and you're, I think you're actually providing a service, which is really nice. I think, well, so are you by doing this podcast that you do, because again, it's a, it's an issue that a lot of people take for granted. And I think that it permeates society internationally, globally, in so many different levels. And it's really something that needs to be addressed. And it's shameful. The food industry and this dieting industry is a travesty. And it continues to project bad feelings, ill health, and sickness to people. Yeah. All in the face of, all in the voice of like trying to help people. It doesn't help anyone largely, these, these types of industries. No. And if it does, it's very, very temporary. You know, I've had this conversation with my wife where, or, or even some of my older daughters who, who will say like, I want to do a diet. And I'm like, okay, really? Do you really need to? I don't think you need to, but okay, if that's what you want to do. And, and then they'll go, I want to lose seven pounds this week. And I'm like, what are you talking? What's that's the point true. of that? Just to go to like a party on Saturday and then like it doesn't matter anymore, you know. This is, but I think that 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 could be valid for quite a few people. There could be a lot of people that just want to lose seven pounds this week and then kind of don't care about next week. But I don't think that that's what's yeah, being I, sold. I, I don't think anybody's selling that diet. They're selling here's how you lose seven pounds. Full stop. You know. Or yeah, but I also think that. like. You should just live your life in one way. Not, I mean, again, it's easy to proselytize and to preach about it, but I just don't believe in any, there should be no such thing as dieting should be outlawed. And you should just, if you're not eating healthily for any given um, variety of reasons, you should just try to get things in sync and find a natural balance within yourself to eat the foods you love, to eat the foods you crave with moderation and temperance. And again, easier said than done. And I'm not one to talk because I still binge to this day, but I try to do so with more forethought. And I just, a dieting is something you start and stop. And really one should eat in a lifestyle way, which is, has continuity with what's healthy and what's good for you as a person and satisfies your urges in a way that is, is healthy and life affirming and not something that will make your cholesterol go too high or your blood pressure too much. I mean, there are things that are obviously inherently bad, salt, too much salt, artificial ingredients, preservatives, these things you should go without. Like, again, like there are some things that you may love, but they're just inherently bad, like Coca-Cola. Again, I don't mean to like go against any particular company or, but these things are as bad as cigarettes. 
they're marketed relentlessly and they're just sure they they satisfy an urge but there's just nothing good to come from a can of soda i mean of course if you have it once in a blue moon it won't kill you but to drink diet soda on a regular basis is absurd you may as well be taking heroin i'm sorry i just think it's equally as insidious to the body i'm a big fan of sparkling water that's kind of my um treat nowadays and it's a bizarre treat you know at a bar i'll have like a club soda with a lime and i feel like i'm splurging um but it's taken a lot to get to that point you know because i even went through a diet soda phase and had to give it up and didn't feel good yeah but yeah i just don't i mean that look at the ingredients and it's like it'll 20 sodas will will kill a mouse you know a a baby mouse no good yeah no good all right kenny Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I hope I didn't sound too preachy, preachy, but I'm doing my best. No, I appreciate it so much. I think it was, I think it was really wonderful. And I love your story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it with all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. And tell your daughter to get in touch if she ever needs any help. Oh, I will for sure. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Now for some Q&A. This question comes from Michael. He writes, hey, Ethan, I was wondering what your thoughts on supplements are. I'm currently 265, down from 300. I have a hard time reaching my protein goals and supplement with a powder. I also supplement with BACAs, BCAAs, branch-chain amino acids. Some people say they are a waste of money. Others don't. I was just wondering what your thoughts are. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Michael. I don't really take a lot of supplements. I take uh, protein powder. I take whey protein in the morning and casein protein at night. Uh, I take casein protein at night because it is slower digesting so that hopefully the protein is getting into my system while I'm asleep. I don't really take anything else. I, I, I occasionally when I'm doing – when I'm on – a a very strict cut, which I'm on maintenance right now, but when I'm really limiting my calories, I will make sure to take some uh, omega-3s as a supplement. As far as protein goes, I don't know what, how much protein you're trying to get, but like if you're currently 265 and you wanted to get 260 grams of protein a day, that's roughly what I eat, you know, I, it shouldn't be that hard. I, I, I would I would say to add a couple protein shakes during the day and, you know, eat some stuff that's really high in protein like chicken breasts or fish or 0% fat Greek yogurt. Those are the sources of protein I get. But I don't know – I don't know that the branch chain amino acids really can make up for not having protein. I, I don't take those. I have taken them and I didn't notice that they did anything, so I stopped taking them. That is what I've got for you, Michael. I hope that helps. Eat your protein and protein powder. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.